Thank you, Brother Bruce. I was thinking, where else but from the Lord Jesus would you be learning to pray? Give me a servant's heart. Most, most would like to pray. Give me a CEO position, you know? Help me make the basketball team. Let me be a famous athlete. Well, we have children's class tonight, and Brother Rick's going to take these kids out, so you're all going to go with him tonight. Tomorrow night, my wife and girls will take over, so the children are dismissed to the fellowship hall. While they're heading that way, let me say a word about the fellowship hall's use tomorrow night. Beside kids' class, and you bring them here, and then we'll dismiss them, we will do, for any of you who can come, a pre-service prayer meeting. I like to do this whenever we can with whomever we can gather. A half hour before the service, so if tomorrow night's service is 7, then at 6.30, if any of you can make it ahead of time, I'd love to have you come and pray with us for a few minutes. Typically, I'll give a brief challenge, and then we'll just jump into praying. And I like to get everybody involved. In fact, uh, the way we've done it recently, I like to have folks just pray one or two requests at a time. I remember being um, with your uncles, the Van Gelderen brothers, for a symphony of prayer one time. And we just basically would pray one particular praise, one particular request. I like doing that because have you ever been the guy at the end of the line waiting for the other guy to go through his whole prayer list? It's kind of hard to keep your focus, right? And uh, if we can just pray one or so burdens, you may pray more than once, but it gives everybody a chance to get together and agree on it. So that'll be tomorrow night at 630. And that's, that's the part we can all take together. And let me just tell you, there's no power from this pulpit if there's not an answer from heaven by God. And the power in the pulpit does not come from the preacher. It comes from God. And that's why I'm so interested in having these prayer meetings with you. So I'd love for you to come and pray. I've had people tell me, and I don't find it insulting, I got more out of the prayer meetings this week than the, the preaching, Brother Rich. And it's no, you know, that's no slight on you. I, I hope the preaching will be good. But it's because you're able to enter into it together. We co-labor together, and I hope you will come. I don't mind if you say that. I'd love to see that, ex- that, uh, that experience for you, because the scripture is clear. We have not because we ask not. So I'd love to have you come tomorrow night. All right, would you open up to Matthew chapter 5 tonight? Matthew chapter 5. I, I don't know that I'll always remember, but I did check the Pew Bible if you uh, are new with us. 14, I'm sorry, 1347 in the Pew Bible is that text, in case you uh, are, this is new to you. You and I have all met this kind of person at some time or another. In fact, you might be married to one of them. Who knows? Every time you meet them, their clothes are perfectly pressed. Their shoes are perfectly polished. They, they always have it together. If you were to visit their homes and look on the desk, you wouldn't find one speck of dust. You open up the desk drawer and all the pencils are sharpened, pointing in the same direction. The highlighters are all perfectly color-coordinated. You look in the closet and the shirts hang with the shirts and they're all color-coordinated, stripes with stripes and solids with solids. And the suits are all together and the, the trousers hang together or, you know, the ladies got the dresses and skirts and all that stuff together. And then you look in the floor and the shoes are perfectly paired up. I heard one guy, he was so extreme, he'd tie the laces and put them back in the closet. Uh, you'd never catch them without a breath mint and they always have some kind of a planner, organizer. Nowadays, it's usually on the phone. But, you know, they, these people have it together, and we know them as perfectionists. How many of you know one of these kind of people? Okay. And some of you are looking at your, your, your mate right now like, yeah, and they drive me crazy. <laughs> now, if you're not a perfectionist, you probably think these people are idiosynchronistic. You know, they have, real, they have really odd idiosyncrasies. But I want to I tell you something. God is a perfectionist. Now, I'm not a perfectionist. My family will tell you that, okay? I have a few perfectionistic tendencies, and kids came along with fingerprints all over the car glass, and that was kind of the end of it. I had to live with it, okay? But God is a perfectionist, and I'm not just talking about order. I'm not just talking about organization. 
in his person. He is a moral perfectionist. God is absolutely holy. I want to give you a message tonight I've entitled, Nothing Less Than Perfect. Nothing Less Than Perfect. Our key text will be Matthew 5, 48. We will get there. But I want to get some context. So let me read several sections out of Matthew 5. You know, this is from Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. I want to read portions of Matthew 5. Um, We are into a series of, you've heard, but I say, you heard, but I say. Let me start in verse 17. And we'll be able to illustrate this to you. Matthew 5, verse 17. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now a jot, that was the Hebrew letter yod, that was the smallest letter. A tittle, that would be a little diacritical mark. You know how we dot an I or cross a T. You know, every little marking is important. He says, not the smallest letter, not the tiniest mark will pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. Verse 19, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he should be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach, then the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case... Enter into the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, if you're going to try to get to heaven being righteous, you'd have to be more righteous than the scribes or Pharisees, and they were considered the most upright of their day. And now he goes into a series of saying, you heard this, but let me tell you this. All right, look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. The word Racha is a word that means empty-headed one. (laughs) Airhead, okay, idiot, okay? So you even say, you brainless person, Racha, you're in danger of the judgment. You say, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Wow. All right, drop down, down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Verse 31, It's been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say to you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. Whosoever shall marry her, that it's divorced, committeth adultery. Verse 33, Again, you've heard been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. But I say unto you, swear not at all. Jump to verse 38. You've heard that it been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 43. You've been heard that it, I'm sorry, you've heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So you get the idea here. He says, okay, here's the stated law, or here's the stated application of the law. He said, I'm going to say this to you. The statement is one thing, but the spirit of the law runs much deeper than that. And then he sums it, with, sums it up with verse 48. This is our text for tonight, Matthew 5, 48. Be therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is 
perfect. It's interesting. Some want to dismiss the whole Sermon on the Mount and say, well, you know, th these are kingdom laws for the coming kingdom when the Lord rules and reigns during the thousand years. Seems to me a little too simplistic to just dismiss it until a future time. You think there's anything in here for us? Ladies, do you think that men ought to listen to thou shalt not commit adultery? Don't even look at a woman with lust? you think that might be for now, not just the millennium? Hmm, yeah, you know. You're not kidding. See, what he's portraying here is the spirit of holiness. And that can come alone from God. I got thinking about this. Be perfect, even as your father. I mean, we're so prone to say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? Almost sounds like liberty to, hey, look, I know I'm, you know, doing something wrong, but don't judge me. I'm forgiven, okay? Is that the attitude we're supposed to have? Of course not. I remember um, discovering the challenge of this passage when I was traveling as a, as a college representative. And I think some of you know the story. I, I went to Pensacola Christian with Pastor Dave Nichols and um, was there in 1985 to 1989. After that, I traveled for the college and and uh, Dan, you can relate to this. You know, you're traveling for a college. You certainly are not just saying things that represent you. They represent the school you're traveling for, right? So I'm out there traveling as a college representative. It's, um, I think it's 1989. I had just graduated. I'm up in, I think I'm in Indiana. I don't remember what church. And I preached from this passage of scripture that night and talked about, you know, be perfect. And I had just done a a sermon contest message from this, and the whole idea is to be, you know, be more and more like Jesus. And then in my message, I said this. Now, of course, we know it's not speaking of sinless perfection, because well, obviously nobody's sinless, but the idea is growing in grace and godliness, etc. The pastor called me aside after the message that night. He said, uh, Brother Rich, before you and the team leave to your respective homes tonight, could I have a word with you? You ever get called to the principal's office when you were a kid? <laughs> some of you had a very telling look when I asked that. Uh, so you know, right? Some, some invitations to the office are not social, right? I knew this was not social. So I remember instructing my guys to load up the van and such. I said, I need to talk to the pastor. So I came in, and he was gracious. He said, Brother Rich, you said something tonight that I, uh, I need to challenge you on. Okay, pastor. He said, you said tonight that the passage, be perfect even as your Father which is in heaven, is not teaching sinless perfection. And I thought, uh-oh. I wonder if I've encountered a Baptist pastor who believes in sinless perfection. In fact, I asked him, I, you know, Jesus used this tactic. You, you, um, you answer a question with a question. I figured if it worked for the Lord, maybe I could get away with it. So I said, Pastor, um, before I answer that question, question. Oh, he asked me, to, oh, sorry, I'm jumping in. He said to me, may I ask you a question? I said, yes, sir. He said, do you believe that God the Father is sinlessly perfect? You ever hear of painting yourself into a corner? I had theologically painted myself into a corner. Now where do you go? So when he asked me that, that's when I thought, okay, I wonder if he believes in sinless perfection. And then I said, may I ask you a question before I answer that? He said, that's fair. I said, Pastor, do you believe in the sinless perfection of the believer in this lifetime? By the way, have you all ever met somebody that believes in sinless perfection? A lot of times it's people out of the holiness movement or others. I, I met a guy one time, he said, I haven't sinned in 20 years. I'm thinking, I want to meet his wife, see if she verifies this. You, you can ask Angela and she will tell you that I have sinned in the last 20 hours, let alone 20 years, right? So I wanted to meet his wife, and well, you know what? I, I know what he meant. He, he hadn't murdered, he hadn't committed adultery, he hadn't used a cuss word in 20 years, but, but what about this? All unrighteousness is sin. 
To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Claim I haven't sinned in 20 years. Okay, so I wondered if I had met a pastor that believed along those lines. I said, Pastor, do you believe in the sinless perfection of the believer in this lifetime? He said, no, I don't. Well, I had no idea where this was going. He said, but my issue with what you preached tonight was when you said, well, obviously this doesn't mean sinlessness because, and he said, but it says be perfect even as your father. He said, Brother Rich, I, I would just encourage you to really think through your assessment of that text before you preach it again. You think I did? Yeah, a whole lot. And I wouldn't be preaching this message tonight if I hadn't. So you're probably thinking, so what did you conclude? That's why there's a message tonight. Because it really was transformative. Don't worry, pastor's not going to have to do mop-up duty after I'm done tonight, okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know where this is going. Don't worry. I, the man is sitting in front of me. I'm aware of that, right? I'm not here to do anything to undermine pastor or to make you wonder, well, is that true or not? Let's search the scripture, but what does it mean? Okay, so let's dive into it this way. We're going to look at three areas. First of all, perfection demanded. Number one is perfection demanded. Why be perfect? Whatever that means. Well, and we'll start with this. A, God commands it. God commands it. Matthew 5, 48 is written in the form of a command. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. It's not a novel idea. It's not, wouldn't it be great? Hey, this is a good ideal. You know, no, this is a do it. Be perfect. After all, you've heard, but I say, you heard, but I say. Summary, be perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. By the way, it's not the only place in the New Testament that's specifically stated. There's another reference to jot down. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And verse 11, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, Paul says, Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Hey, isn't that interesting? He's writing that to the Corinthian church. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, how were they doing spiritually? Not good. In fact, he said, I can't write to you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So in the second letter, apparently we've come a long way. He says, okay, signing off now. This is Paul saying farewell. Hey, by the way, be perfect. Be of good comfort. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. What? Be perfect. Okay, we'll get to the definition in a minute. But suffice it to say, that's twice stated. You do it. But not only A, it's God commands it. But why is perfection demanded? Because B, sanctification demands it. Sanctification demands it. Now, I'm looking at the crowd tonight and figuring, okay, most of you are regular church attenders. In fact, how, how many of you are in the habit when church doors are open, you know, job permitting, health permitting, you're here? How many of you are those people? Yeah. Okay, so you've heard all this before. Sanctification, what's that? It's a process. That's a good word. A process of becoming more and more like whom? Christ. Becoming like Christ. Interesting, you might write down 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all matter of conversation. That's conduct, the way you live, your testimony. So as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy. How about Romans 8, 28 and 29? Most of you know 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Next verse, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Let me ask you, what's the Son of God like? Well, he's like the Father. He said, I and my Father are one, and God is what? Holy. He's perfect. Yeah. 
How about this, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 13, it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You know, the Lord taught us to pray that his will might be done in our world just as it's being done in the heavenly world. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you, how do you think God's will is being done in heaven? Perfectly. Uncontested, right? Satan tried to upset that and got thrown out of heaven for it, right? There's no contest to the will of God in heaven. Hey, is there any contest to the will of God in your life? Well, I know what God says, but I want to. Whoa, we've all turned to his own way. That didn't happen in heaven. Okay, so God commands it and sanctification demands it. Now, none of us is perfect. If, I were to, if that pastor had told me that he believed in sinless perfection, I was going to go to 1 John, and we'll get there in a minute. I was going to go to 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You know, but wait a minute. Let me ask you this. How many of you would say, since I first was saved, there is a whole lot more Christ-likeness in my character now than when I first became a Christian? Anybody experience that? Uh, yeah, I would hope, right? That's growing in grace, 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth in grace. That, that's part of how we know sanctification isn't instantaneous. It's a growth process. Just like babies in the womb aren't born full born. I mean, I, my mom's sure glad I wasn't born 6'6", six, six, okay? And, <laughs> I was just a 22-inch-long 22, uh, kid. That's a pretty big kid, but you know, whatever I weighed, I forget, under 8 pounds or something. And uh, man, it's a good thing babies are not born full-blown. Well, Christians are not born full-blown full either. They, they grow. you got to grow. But you ought to be a lot more like the Lord right now than you were 20 years ago or fifth, whenever it was you got saved, right? Okay, so perfection demanded. But that brings us to number two, and this is really a critical point. Perfection defined. Perfection demanded, that's um, why be perfect, but perfection defined is what is perfection. What is perfection? That's where we need to delve into this a little bit. Now, let me tell you, the word perfect in Matthew, be perfect even as your father, that's an interesting word. The term means having reached its term, end, or limit, having reached its term, end, or limit. Let me start with that facet of the definition. Uh, full term. When, it, when a mother has gone full term with the baby, what's that, for, is it 40 weeks, 39, 40 weeks? 40? Okay. So I remember Angela was expecting our third born, Lene, who's sitting next to her. Um, Lene was supposed to be born October 4th. That's what they were saying, you know. Um, but the 5th came, no baby. The 6th came, no baby. <laughs> My birthday's October 9th. And I remember saying, hey, hon, we wait just to, she said, not on your life, you know. <laughs> So Lene was born October 7th, uh, just, you know, the Lord brought her along, and then um, we were in the hospital for a couple days because she was, uh, Angela was uh, 40 when the baby was born, and so I was, I was uh, two days away from turning 44, and I remember we, they had to keep her for observation, so I remember midnight rolls around on October 9th, she'd been born the 7th, and I remember, it's my birthday. And there's a Denny's next door. You get free breakfast, at, a free meal at Denny's on your birthday. So I went to Denny's. I remember that very distinctly. Lene had her own birthday. Okay, so when full term comes, that had nothing to do with the message. It was just fun to tell. She was, uh, my wife was ready to deliver. Hey, um, how many of you think that term limits in Congress would be a good idea? Anybody beside me? <laughs> yeah, how about three months, you know? Well, I don't. <laughs> But anyway, reached its term ender limit. Who was the last president that was more than two terms? So, I mean, officially, other than those running behind the scenes. But officially, who was the last president to have more than two terms? FDR. Remember how many he had? 
Yeah, so, and then term limits came. So now you can only be in office for, you know, a total of eight years. Okay, so term, full term, maxed out, having reached its term end or limit. Hey, if the Fish and Game Commission say that, you know, your maximum fish you can catch is five, well, who's going to stop at four? You know, if you can get five, you're going to try to get five, right? Okay, so perfect, having reached its term end or limit. It also means this, full, entire, wanting nothing. Full, entire, wanting nothing. Um, there's another idea here, and that's complete in all its parts. Complete in all its parts. Have any of you dads had the experience that I have? Uh, you, Christmas, you buy a toy for the children, and the box has the dreaded words, some assembly required. Has that ever happened in your world? It's happened in my world, right? And you know men, ladies know the men. Who looks at the manual, right? We dump it out on the ground and we try to assemble it all. And when it's all done, you say to your wife, oh, look, they had some extra parts. She said, uh, no, I don't think, honey, they don't just throw extra parts in there. Well, they did in this one. And then three weeks later, the toy falls apart. Why? You didn't follow the manual. It's all complete in all its parts. Yeah, all those parts are necessary, right? Okay, so be perfect. Complete in all parts. Full. Uh, having reached its term end or limit. Let me ask you, does that define your Christian life? How's your prayer life? How's your meditating on Scripture? How's your personal witnessing going? How's serving others? How's your attitude? How's the fruit of the Spirit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you ever felt like you had it all together in your Christian life? Maybe more often than not, you felt like me. I'll go to a revival meeting or I'll sit in a conference and I'll think, man, okay, I got really burdened about this. I'm going to start memorizing scripture, you know. I'm going to start meditating on the Word. And it's, it's kind of like juggling plates, right? So, okay, so I, I've been reading my Bible. Now I'm going to memorize scripture. And i got these plates up in the air. And then somebody else preaches on prayer. It's like, oh, okay, now i got to get them all up in the air at the same time. Have you ever felt like you had everything together? Probably not. So what in the world? Okay, let me give you an argument then. Letter A is argument, okay? And argument is this. Nobody's perfect. Don't expect me to be. That's the argument. That's the, by the way, if Christians don't say it, we live it. Nobody's perfect. Don't expect me to be. And I put in parentheses the word, or the two words, no attempt. No attempt. We don't even try. Because we just kind of pride ourselves on, you know, I'm just sinner saved by grace. I'm justified, I'm forgiven, so, you know, it's not on me to save me, it's on Christ. Yeah, but he who hath begun a good work, and you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says he's the author and finisher of our faith. He didn't just save you to save you. He saved you to sanctify you. Okay, so he's the, he's the completer. Let's go to 1 John for a minute. 1 John chapter 1. This is where I would have gone. Uh, if the pastor I was talking to had believed in sinless perfection in this lifetime, he did not. But I was thinking of these verses. 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 9, I'm glad this is in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Aren't you glad that's true? Notice, he's not only faithful, he does it every time. He's just. Why is God just to forgive my sins? Because what we looked at this morning, Jesus Christ paid for those sins with his blood, with his death on the cross, with his triumphant resurrection. My sin is paid for completely by him. So he's not only faithful, not only can you count on him every time to forgive you, but he's just to do it. Then verse 10, 
If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, so you say, hey, you know, sinless perfection. I'll tell you what, I haven't sinned in 20 years. That, that man that told me that, I didn't know him from anybody, so I wasn't going to argue with him. But if he'd been a person I could have reasoned with, I would have said, well, what do you do with this? Keep going, chapter 2 now, 1 John 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you what? Sin not. What's another way of sin not? Saying sin not. Don't sin, all right? I'm writing to you that you don't sin. And if any man does sin, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The word advocate is like the defense attorney. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the righteous one. And here's another legal term. He's the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the means by which one party, having been offended by, the, by another party, is reconciled, and that's what the propitiation does. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, you're not saved by works. We know that. But Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what? Unto good works. Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God didn't save you just so you could live a promiscuous life. He saved you to live a sanctified life. So, the argument. Nobody's perfect. Don't expect me to be. I love uh, Proverbs 24.16. A just man falls seven times, hath riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Okay, a just man falls Seven times. Now, in the Bible, seven's the number of what? Perfection. So if a guy falls seven times, he must be a perfect failure. <laughs> a complete catastrophe, right? No, he rises up again. You know, it, I'm writing to you that you sin not. Now, if any man sin, we have an advocate. And what do we do if we sin? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I love the poem I heard from uh, Pastor Shetler, Jim Shetler, years ago when he was our pastor. He quoted a, a poem from Martha Snell Nicholson called My Advocate. I don't know if you ever heard the poem. I sinned, and straightway, post-haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod, has sinned. <laughs> Tis true, he has named thy name, but I demand his death. For thou hast said, the soul that sinneth it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night. And every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke. Each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies. But wait. Suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan flew away. Full well he knew he could not prevail against such love, for every word my dear Lord spoke was true. Thank God for my advocate, folks. He's your advocate if you know him as Savior. So thank God there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 
That being said, there's no excuse for living worldly. No excuse for living carnally, sinfully. Okay, so the argument is, well, nobody's perfect. Let me give you an illustration. I, I remember I was in college and I went up to the uh, library. This is back when people actually went to libraries and looked at real books, right? I look up something on a microfish. Any of you remember that? Okay. Some of the kids around here said, I never fished for that. Well, it's like um, opaque paper, and you would put it on a, uh, like an opaque uh, projector, and you'd look through it, and okay, what volume, where am I going? So I thought, okay, where am I going to find perfect? I knew. I, I decided I'll search perfect games in baseball, see what I can find. So I got old Sports Illustrateds out and began to, uh, to look, and, and I got off on a rabbit trail. Preachers do that sometimes. I found a baseball game from 1958. Two teams I never heard of, the Bristol Twins, Bristol, Virginia, and the Welch Miners. And this was from May 13th of, actually, 1952. And there was a pitcher for Bristol by the name of Ron Nechai. And very interesting, he said in the first inning, this guy went out, and in the first inning, he struck out three batters in a row. Second inning, he got two strikeouts and then induced a ground out to the shortstop. Third inning, the first batter got on base when the pitcher beamed him with a ball. That's an automatic walk. But he composed himself and then struck out three more. Fourth inning, Ron, uh, I'm sorry, uh, batter got on with a shortstop, bobbled the ball. Fourth inning, Ron struck the batter, automatic walk. Then he gained his composure and struck out the next three. Now, just pause for a minute. Ron Nechai was six feet, five inches tall. I'm six, six. So basically a guy my height, right? They said he didn't use any wind-up motion at all. You know, some big guys, they'll put their leg up, they'll bring their arm way over. He would just bring the ball to his chest and fire the fastball. That was his, basically his one and only pitch. But he was amazing with it. Nobody could hit his stuff. In the fifth inning, he went out, and he struck out three in a row. Same thing in the sixth inning. In the seventh inning, when he struck out the first batter he faced, the fans yelled out, 18! In, in six and a third innings, he had struck out 18 batters. He uh, struck out the next guy, walked the third man, and then struck out the fourth, and the fans yelled, 20! Through six innings, 20 strikeouts. Oh, another thing about Ron. That night, he was dealing with a burning ulcer in his stomach. Every time in between innings, he would come to the dugout, he'd drink a glass of milk, he'd eat some cottage cheese. One time during the game, they called timeout. The bat boy brought him milk to the mound that he drank a glass of milk to try to keep this ulcer under control. So he's dealing with all that. The eighth inning comes, and he strikes out another three in a row. 21, 22, 23. The fans are counting down. He goes to the ninth inning. He's going to pitch a complete game. He gets up in the ninth inning, and the first batter, he gets two fouls on. Well, you know, two fouls, your first two fouls are strikes. So now the batter's just trying to stay alive. And as batters do, they'll make contact just to try to keep alive. So the third pitch is fouled off. Catcher jumps under. It's, it's opportunity for an easy catch. But the fans yell at the catcher, drop it, drop it. So he drops it. And on the next pitch, Ron strikes out that guy. That's strikeout. Number 25. Well, the next man comes to the plate, and Ron actually gets three quick strikes on him, but not on purpose. The catcher drops the ball, and the alert base runner runs to first base. And you know, even if you've been struck out, if you advance to first, it's like stealing. So he's safe at first. So there were 26 strikeouts. That brings another man to the plate. Everybody knows what's coming. Ron pitches strike after strike at him, and the man keeps missing, and finally... 
On the third pitch, he strikes him out, and the fans come unglued. 27! They come out of the stands. They throw him on their shoulders. They're carrying him around the field. 27 strikeouts in nine innings. You can't do better than that. Perfect game. Not a perfect game. If you know baseball, perfect games necessitate no runs, no hits, no errors. Shortstop bobbled a ball that he should have caught. That's an error. Ron beamed a guy, automatic walk. What if that happened early in the game? What if Ron had thrown his glove down and kicked the dirt like, stupid game? You know, players know that rarely will you play a perfect game. The amazing thing about elite athletes is they're striving to be as good as they possibly can, even though rarely does anyone attain perfection. Isn't it incredible that athletes have more of a consuming desire to perfect their game than Christians do to perfect their walk with God. Impressive to me, I went back and saw, you know, another tall pitcher, Randy Johnson, who pitched for multiple teams, Arizona Diamondbacks and others, but he ended up um, at 40 years old pitching his uh, last perfect game, and it was against uh, the Atlanta Braves. And that night, Randy Johnson, six foot ten, the big unit, had 13 strikeouts, and he pitched a perfect game. That isn't even half of what Ron Nechai had. But although Ron Nechai did not pitch a perfect game, 27 strikeouts in nine innings is just unbelievable. Why do I give you that analogy? I find it convicting that athletes are so consumed at striving for perfection, even though perfection is nearly unattainable, but they're going after it. You know, it reminds me of another analogy I brought with me tonight. Hopefully this will help you. And that is the analogy of a target. If you shoot target practice, and, you know, it doesn't matter if it's arrows, rifle, airsoft, whatever, pistol, in the middle of the target, there is typically a blaze-colored circle. What do we call that? The bullseye. And if you're shooting target practice, what is the goal? You want to hit what? The bullseye. Does a shooter hit the bullseye every time? Not typically. You know, it's really hard to do. But what's the goal? The bullseye. Follow this. Be perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Interestingly, what does the word sin mean? Sin means to miss the mark. I'm writing to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Do you understand the analogy is like target practice? There's no outcome-based Christian living. It doesn't drive you nuts nowadays, participation awards. No one's a winner. We all just participate. Ah, God. Who wants to play sports just to participate? You know, motivation is a win. That's why you play sports. Listen, in the Christian life, we're not doing it for our glory. We're doing it for God's glory. But the goal is Christ-likeness. So let me give you this. We've looked at the argument. Let me give you B, the answer. Okay, the argument. Nobody's perfect. Don't expect me to be. No attempt. That's that attitude. Letter B, answer. Christ is our sufficiency. Christ is our sufficiency, and in parentheses, I put no excuses. No excuses. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, go with me to Philippians chapter 3 for a minute. Philippians chapter 3. There are numerous places in the Scripture I could illustrate this, but Philippians 3, uh, let me start in verse number 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. 
The word dung is, is waste of all kinds. It can be excrement. It can be scraps off the table. It can be, you know, the dross from a refiner's fire. Just, it's just stuff to be discarded, okay? I count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him, verse 9, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Notice that. Know him personally, know him powerfully, and yes, know him painfully, that I may know him. Verse um, 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, let's pause there for a minute. What does that mean? If I could attain to the resurrection of the dead. My, my mom passed away a year ago, January, of 20, uh, January 27th last year. And one of my good friends, um, Dave Goforth, used to pastor down at Providence Baptist in Riverview. Dave sent me a, a book from um, Randy Alcorn, Heaven. And it is, it's, it's been amazing, I will tell you. I've learned a lot from the book on Heaven. And he talked about, you know, what's going to be different in our resurrected bodies. And he said, look, God made you to live in a body. You will always live in a body. You will not be a disembodied spirit. He made you to live in a body and in a physical world. The new heaven and new earth will be a physical realm. And the new Jerusalem will come down and it will hover over the new earth. And by the way, the new earth, he's, and, and I thought he made a good point for this, he said the new earth will be this earth resurrected. Because we've always talked about a new heaven and new earth. Well, I'm going to be in a body one day that's a new body, but guess what? It'll be this one resurrected. That's an amazing thought. And he said, in the new earth, you will enjoy the same wholesome things that you enjoyed at this world, but at a totally different level. And he goes on to explain that. But among many things that will be true in the new world, why do, why do we pine for the new world? Well, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, and guess what else? No more sin. When Paul says, if I could attain to the resurrection of the dead, you know what he's talking about? I'll never sin again. If I could start living now like I'm going to be living in the glorified body, wouldn't that be perfect? Wouldn't that be awesome? How many times have you ever done something and you think, man, I disappointed myself. I know I disappointed God. That won't happen in the new world. That's what he means when he said, if I could attain to the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 12. Not as though I'd already attained, either already, what's the next word? Perfect. I haven't arrived yet. Even the Apostle Paul said that. I haven't gotten there yet. But I follow after. I put in the margin of my Bible, hot pursuit. That's what follow after means. You know, like, follow that car. Hot pursuit. I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Okay, what's apprehend mean? If police apprehend a suspect, what do they do? Take him into custody. They catch him. If I could apprehend that for which I am apprehended, why did God save you? to deliver you from sin. If I could just get a hold of the reason God apprehended me, what is that? To be freed from sin. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Let there be no mistake. I'm not telling you that I'm sinless. I'm not telling you if I've arrived, but this one thing I do. And the one thing is summarized in this, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You can't focus on the past if you're looking forward to the prize, which is Christ-likeness. And then look at verse 15. He says, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. Whoa, whoa, time out. Wait a minute. Did he not just say in verse 12, I'm not perfect? You read it, right? And now in verse 15, he said, let us who are perfect have the same mindset. What? Is there contradiction in Scripture? There's never contradiction in Scripture. But sometimes there are comprehension issues with us in Scripture. Now, you've got to understand, Paul's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. In verse 12, he's talking about the practical. 
practice, his walk. In my walk, I've not attained perfection. In verse 15, he's talking about positional truth. Here's my status. I'm perfect in Christ Jesus. So he said, I want my practice to match my position. Uh, You remember the little chorus, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks? Yeah, your, your walk is what reflects on God. Let your, works, your good works so shine before men, they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Okay, go over to Ephesians five, uh, 4. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 4. Oops, back up a book. And I, I could go to Romans 8, and I could go to some other places, but the answer, Christ, is our sufficiency. Let me give you two references to jot down. Colossians 1, 27 and 28, um, which says you're... Um, Let's see, if if I might present you perfect in Christ Jesus, that's talking about our status, okay? Colossians 2.10 says um, you're complete in him. The word perfect and complete, same concept, okay? Complete in all parts, wanting, lacking, nothing. Ephesians 4, look at verse 11. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, let me just say, I've, I've always been grateful to men like Pastor Peterson that will have an evangelist come in. He understands the evangelist is not here to compete with the pastor. Our roles are different. A.W. Tozer said, the pastor is like the family doctor, the evangelist is like a surgeon. Um, if you just have your basic sniffles, you probably are not going to surgeon to deal with it. That's a bit of overkill, right? Okay, so what was Tozer talking about? He said, look, the, the whole idea is the, the, fam, the family doctor knows your history. He's, you, you pick him for his bedside manners. You know, a surgeon, you may not know the guy from anybody, but you, we got some major deals that need to be taken care of, and it's got to be radical, and that's why he comes in. So uh, one evangelist I know said evangelists tend to blow in, blow up, and blow out. Okay, And so now I, I, the Lord has tempered me over the years. I have learned that uh, you know I'm supposed to speak the truth in love, but I will tell you I am definitely motivated by thus set the Lord. You used to be throw the grenade and wherever it lands, so be it, because, you know, it's God's truth, and if you don't like it, sorry. Well, there's a balance in all that, okay? But as evangelists, we're usually motivated by, thus said the Lord. Well, the pastor's heart is for the people to grow and become godly, and he knows it's a process. And Okay, but why does a pastor have an evangelist come in? The evangelist is not just for people to hear the gospel. This passage says he gave apostles and prophets, that's the foundation on which he built the church, then he gives evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and pastor slash teacher, and that's a shepherd and an instructor. That's what a pastor does. For the what? Perfecting of the saints. Okay, for the work of the ministry. Why is God perfecting you? Not so he can shine you up and put you on the trophy case. God is perfecting you for the work of the ministry. We're never to have the thought, well, you know, we got a pastor, we got a pastoral staff, they'll win the souls and they'll disciple people. It's our work collectively, not their work. They're perfecting us for the work of the ministry. Okay? So, and there's the idea of perfection. So I then finish with this thought tonight. Perfection developed, number three. How do I become perfect? What's the idea? Well, to go back to the bullseye analogy, the bullseye is holiness. The bullseye is godliness. The bullseye is no sin. Paul says, I'm going to tell you, I haven't achieved that yet, but it doesn't keep me from striving for that. That's the command. When we sin, we don't just say, oh, well, you know, thank God I'm forgiven by grace. Grace is not licensed to do whatever you want. Grace is enabling to do what you ought. 
And the desire and the hunger is to be more and more like God. So how do you get there? Well, I don't want to tell you my opinion. I want to know what does the Bible say? So I got out my concordance. You could do this too. And I, um, I looked through the Strong's concordance at the word perfect. Where does it appear in the New Testament? And I found three places that were told how to develop perfection. And I'm going to take them in order of the books of the scripture. And we're in the first one. It's in Ephesians 4. The first one is this. Well, see, see if you can figure this out. What does Pastor Peterson, uh, what do I do for the perfecting of the saints? Do we, do we get a big vat of holy water and splash it on people? Do we say, come on down front and we'll bop you on the head and you fall on the ground, froth at the mouth, gyrate, save, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. No. I'll give you a hint. What am I doing right now? Please don't say frothing at the mouth and yelling. What, what am I doing right now? Preaching. Yeah. He perfects A through preaching. Through preaching. The, the pastor, teacher, the evangelist, they were given for the perfecting the saints. How many of you have ever heard a Bible message that changed your way of living, that changed your personal practice? Anybody ever hear a message that changed your life? I hope you'll hear some this week. That's the point of preaching. Preaching is not just instruction. Jesus went about teaching and preaching. I like to do both in my messages. I'm doing a lot of teaching tonight. But preaching has a so what attached to it. It's to call men and women to response. Okay, so perfected through preaching. But then I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the next place I found that we're given instruction on how to be perfected. 2 Timothy 3, look at verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. And just lest you wonder what that means, truly furnished unto all good works. Remember, complete in all parts. Okay, so God gave us a perfect Bible. He gave it by inspiration. He kept it through preservation. We have, a, we have a perfect word. Why? Not just so we say, I love the Bible, it's perfect. He gave a perfect word to perfect you. So letter B, I wrote down through personal Bible study. Through personal study. How many of you have ever had personal quiet time and something you read in the Bible made a difference in your behavior? Yeah, I hope everybody. When you're reading the Bible, it ought to be, what, what am I going to apply from the Bible? Okay, so we have preaching, we have personal study. We'll end in one more place, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James 1, 2 through 4. How is perfection developed? Through preaching, through personal study, and then look at this, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, various kinds of troubles. Knowing this, that the trying of your patience, of your faith worketh patience. That's uh, endurance, steadfastness. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be, what's the next word? Perfect. Oh, and here's the definition. Perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The word perfect is, there are a number of synonyms used, but it's always the same concept. Perfect, complete in all parts, wanting nothing. Okay? So, according to James, what, what does God use for perfecting us in this context? Trials. I called them problems to fit my P model here. Okay? So, we have preaching, personal study of Scripture, and problems. How many of you have ever gone through a trial in your life and it yielded more Christ-likeness in your life? Yeah. Now I want you to think of this as we finish the message tonight. What if we're not having personal quiet time? 
Think of a dessert fork. You know, typically a fork will have four tines, four prongs on the fork. Dessert fork will often have three. And have you ever gotten a piece of, a piece of plastic cutlery and one of the tines break off? And if you're like the typical man, we'll just keep going with two because we don't want to go back up to the dessert line, you know, and this pie is too good for that. So, and then you break another one off. You got one left. You know how it goes, all right? Finally, you got to go back. But let, let's say you got three times here. So one is personal Bible study, but you're not doing that. You're not having your quiet time. So what's God got left? Well, he's got preaching and he's got problems. But just because you're in church doesn't mean you're responding to preaching. What does James tell us a little later in this chapter? Be ye doers of the word and not what? Hearers only. Yeah, verse 22. Because if you're just a hearer only, you're deceiving your own self. You know, I, I hope you'll come to services this week looking to change. I hope you'll come to the service saying, what does God want me to adjust in my life? Where does he want me to make a difference in the way I live? So be a doer of the word, not just to hear. So think about this. Maybe you're sitting under preaching, but you're not responding to preaching. So if you're not having personal quiet time and you're not responding to preaching, what does God have left? Problems. And sometimes we think, why do I have so many problems? Now, I'm not telling you if you have problems because you're not having your devotions and you're not responding to preaching. No, the best of people will have problems. But I think sometimes we maximize the amount of problems we have because we've given nothing else for, with which God can work. Wouldn't it be awesome if you were actively cooperating with God through preaching, personal study, and problems to see your life become more and more like Jesus Christ? Nothing less than perfect. That's the goal. You've listened really well. Let's bow our heads together tonight. Thank you, Lord. This is a, this is, this is a meteor topic tonight. I know these the most part are mature believers, and I kind of sized up the crowd tonight and thought, yeah, I think this is the group that probably could benefit from this. And I pray we will. I, I pray we will take it to heart. Search us. I, I really believe that the key principle to revival is that passage that David spoke to you in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So please do that. Our heads bowed. I will tell you this. You, you will never become like God if you first have not been saved by God. You must first be born again if you're going to have new life. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. How many of you here tonight can say, you know, thank God, there came a day in my life that I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I know that to be true. Would you lift your hand? Yeah. You put them down. Is there anybody tonight you'd say, I don't, I don't know if God's ever forgiven my sins. I don't know if I'd go to heaven when I die. I, I'm, I'm concerned about this. You just said if you try to get to heaven being good, you'd have to be perfect. Yeah, you would, and nobody is. Well, then who can get to heaven? Nobody apart from Christ. He alone can save you. Is there anyone tonight you'd have to admit, I am try tired of trying. I, I've got to trust the Lord to save me. Anybody like that? That is my need. I've never trusted Christ as Savior. I've been trying to be good enough to get me to heaven. I realize now that's not going to happen. I want to trust God to give me forgiveness of sins and extend to me His righteousness. Is there anybody like that? That's what I need tonight. Anybody that knows that? I assume most everybody here claims to be a Christian and knows the Lord. So let me ask this. How many of you would say, I was definitely convicted in some area of my Christian life tonight. Would you hold up your hand? Let me just start with a general question. Definitely convicted in some area. Yeah, okay. 
How many of you say, I needed the encouragement of when you gave that poem of my advocate and illustrating that he's our advocate and, you know, no matter how many times, like the just man, he falls seven times. But here's the thing, he rises up again. He's not a perfect failure. By grace, he gets up again. How many of you needed that note of encouragement tonight? Yeah, a number of people. Let's go through the specifics. How many said, I don't have a daily quiet time, and God was really speaking to me about the deficiency of my quiet time. Pray for me. I need to start a regular quiet time. Anybody here need that? Okay. I'll be speaking about that this week at some point. Don't wait for me to preach on it. Start it. Just get some time with God. Find a passage. You know, Proverbs every day is a great place to start. Chapter Proverbs every day. How many of you would say, I... uh, I listen to preaching, but I've got to tell you, it's been a while since I deliberately responded to something God had said from the truth. And tonight he convicted me not just to be a hearer, but a doer. Anybody need that tonight? I needed that, Brother Rich. Yeah. And then how about that last one, problems? Oh, so often I complain about my problems. Why do I have to go through problems? Tonight I'm reminded that God uses problems to perfect me. I want to cooperate with God in that. Anybody need that tonight? Yeah. Tell you what, would you all look up at me? Let's just close out with an invitation. Let's stand together. And uh, so we'll stand. We'll bow our heads. I'll ask our pianist to play. Listen, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. It's real easy to sit through a message that was a lot of teaching and think, oh, yeah, I needed that. That's good. But preaching is so what? And that's where the invitation comes in. Would you bow your heads with me? Tonight, you need to come. Would you do that? Would you dismiss yourself right now? Bow before the Lord. It's an act of humility. and It's an act of worship. And you say, Lord, I'm hearing you. You're speaking to me. I want you to change me. You need to come. Would you do so tonight? You probably recognize the the words to the melody you're hearing. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord. Help us to listen. That's a great prayer. If coming down the aisle is not easy for you, you know, it'd be perfectly fine to kneel there at your place. I think there's enough room in these aisles. If you can only sit, that's fine. You know, just lower yourself before the Lord and say, God, I don't want to just be a spectator this week. I want to be one whose life you change. Pastor will come here as we're finishing up some praying and if you need to come he'll give you time maybe pray for one more time okay God is still working and we need to respond either at front here or right where you're at God spoke to your heart why not deal with that tonight
Father in heaven, thank you for such a wonderful message. Thank you for a message that speaks to our hearts. Lord, it's our desire to grow and mature and be like Christ in every our life. You've uh, spoke about that tonight. Lord, help us to be perfect as you are perfect. Help us to be the kind of person that you're pleased with, that you smile upon, and that you blessings may be upon us. We thank you, Brother Tozier. We're looking forward to the message to come. I know that you would just lay on his heart exactly what we need as a body of Christ. For us in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Just to let you know, uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, we will be taking up a love offering for Brother Tozier. Uh, our way of saying how much we appreciate him, be a blessing to him. When we talk, when there's nothing was said about money, how much he wants, how much he needs, he just come in by faith to preach the word of God. And I, I just want to encourage you, if God lays in your heart, maybe you consider that either tomorrow night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, so we can be a blessing to him. Brother, would you come and close us in prayer? Not prayer, but a song. And then we'll be dismissed tonight. Brother Tozier, welcome to the door. And uh, Angela, if you'd like to meet with them, go ahead and do that. My wife and I had uh, lunch with the family, a tremendous family. We enjoyed so much being with them, and uh, I'm looking forward to tomorrow night. God bless you. We'll close with this hymn, and we'll be dismissed. <laughs>